Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and it really is a great pleasure and a thrill for me to see all of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. This Friday, our newest exhibition, AIDS in New York, the first five years, will open, and I hope that all of you will return then and thereafter to see it. It's really a moving and um, quite, uh, I say with great pride for my colleagues, brilliantly carried out and displayed exhibition and will make you think about that time in New York that was really so difficult and tragic and had such a great impact on the history of our city. On a happier note, I also want to make sure that uh, I invite you to, um, to our Bernard and Irene Schwartz classic film series, which is the brainchild of my great colleague, our Vice President for Public Programs, Dale Gregory. Um, it's free on Friday nights, which are pay-as-you-wish. I also want to make sure that anyone here who's not yet a member of the New York Historical Society um, thinks about joining. Please, uh, please do join the wonderful group of people who support this institution in so many ways. You have many benefits as a member, um, exclusive openings, and, uh, and uh, also discounts to most public programs. So um, please see one of my colleagues on your way out if you're not already a member. Tonight's program, Foreign Policy Begins at Home, The Case for Putting America's House in Order, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their great help, which has made it possible for us to bring so many wonderful writers and historians to this auditorium. I also want to recognize uh, a number of special people in the audience, many members of our Chairman's Council, and uh, also our Chairman, Roger Hertog, our Vice Chair, Pam Schapler, and our Trustee, Richard Reese. Thank you to all of you for all the great work that you do on our behalf. Thank you. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. We ask audience members to come up to standing microphones in the aisle right in front of me to my left, in the aisle to my right. We do this so that the people on the stage can hear your questions, as well as the other people in the audience. Following the program, there will be a book signing. The moderator of this evening's program enjoys a very special relationship with the New York Historical Society. He's Roger Hertog, our chairman, and the person to whom we owe the deepest debt of gratitude for the transformation of this great institution into the destination for history in New York. He's given us an avalanche of ideas, inspiration, and treasure that's enabled us to realize our ambition of engaging people like those of you here this evening in the enjoyment of learning about American history. Mr. Hertog is the recipient of the William E. Simon Prize for Philanthropic Leadership, the National Humanities Medal, an honorary degree from the City University of New York Graduate Center, and many, many other awards and accolades. He will introduce our speaker this evening, Richard Haas. Please, uh, as I ask Roger and Richard, to join me on the stage, um, please make sure that anything that makes a noise like a cell phone is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming our guests.
Good evening. Good evening, sir. So I am um, pleased and honored to be sharing the stage with um, Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations. I think for all of us, certainly it was for me reading this book, this should be an especially interesting evening because Richard has written a truly provocative book on ideas. Very few people write books on ideas. His book is called, I'm holding it up so, so you can see, so you can go into our, our store later and you can have, buy, buy this book so it can be autographed. You'll autograph some of these books? Good. Maybe you will. <laughs> um, foreign policy begins at home, the case for putting America's house in order. It's Richard's ninth book. He's edited four others. But this one raises large strategic questions. And after you've read the book, I think it'll, you'll agree it made you think hard about key issues facing our country. Dr. Haas has had a remarkable career. He's worked for four presidents. He was special assistant to George H. Bush, Bush 41, as senior director for Near East and South Asia on the National Security Council staff during that administration. During the George W. Bush presidency, he was director of policy planning at the State Department and the principal advisor to Colin Powell. He also served in the Carter and Reagan administrations. His book is unusual, if you had to put a sharp point on it, is because it marries serious discussion about foreign policy with a serious discussion about economics. Most national security types don't get into economics. The two fields are generally kept in their own separate worlds of experts in orthodoxy. So bringing together these distinct disciplines is itself a valuable contribution. To make this evening's discussion even richer, I think it's best to quote what Dr. Haas says in his introduction. It'll sort of set the table for what the thesis of this book is. So let me quote from the book. The biggest threat to America's security and prosperity comes not from abroad, but from within. The United States has jeopardized its ability to effectively, in the, its ability to act effectively in the world because of runaway domestic spending, an underinvestment in human and physical capital, an unnecessarily slow recovery a war in Iraq that was flawed from the outset, a war in Afghanistan but that became flawed as its purpose evolved, recurring fiscal deficits, deep political divisions, foreign policy needs to begin at home now and for the foreseeable future. That is the essence of Richard's case and we're gonna to try to explore sort of unwrap some of his thoughts and those policies about what he really says in this, in this book. So let me start off with one of the ones that's actually most optimistic. <laughs> be a short Because he's, he's, he's just a joy to be with here. 
As for you. <laughs> I think the largest story of 2012-13, which none of our so-called experts predicted, is the real possibility that America can attain energy independence in the next decade. It's just a startling thing when you even say it. Yet we're stymied now in politics. The Keystone Pipeline, the leasing of federal lands for fracking. This could be a game-changing moment in both the economic sphere and in the national security space. Why aren't we making more progress? And what do you recommend? I promised to answer that, but can I just say two things before I answer that? Uh, one, it's great to be back at the New York Historical Society, particularly maybe for two reasons. Uh, one is uh, Bernard and, I and Irene Schwartz. They are really, uh, to me, great citizens uh, of this city and of, of the institutions. And at the other, to, at the risk of saying something nice about your chairman and my uh, inquisitor here, is uh, Roger who is uh, also a great citizen, and I think is, uh, I often describe him as the most strategic philanthropist I've ever encountered. And uh, it actually makes a larger public policy point, which is, uh, I often say, and I say it in the book, it's, it's not, in many cases, how much you spend, it's how you spend. And that's true, we, we spend twice what the OECD averages on healthcare, but we don't have outcomes that are twice as good. And on virtually every public policy area, the level of spending is not significant. And again, st strategic philanthropy to me is, uh, it's just that, it's strategic. And Roger uh, is both generous but, uh, but smart in how he, how he does it. Energy. The only thing I'd quibble with is uh, we're not quite energy in independent because independence suggests an ability to separate ourselves from, from developments in the energy world. I, I prefer the phrase, maybe it's, it might be, a, I think it's a distinction with a difference, of self-sufficient. And certainly when one adds in Canada and, and Mexico, uh, it's true. And nobody saw it coming. I didn't see it coming. It happened quite quickly, quite recently. And this year we're enjoying a 25-year high in oil production a 25-year low in, in oil imports. We now have what many people think are the world's largest reserves of, of natural gas, which, by the way, is fueling our manufacturing renaissance in this country, because unlike oil, natural gas does not have a global price. Natural gas is locally priced. And so the fact that natural gas in the United States is one-fifth or one-sixth what it is in many countries in Asia, suddenly it's a real equalizer. So labor costs might be lower there, but the combination of natural gas differences and then transportation costs suddenly explains why goods produced in the United States and Mexico and with elements from both, if you will, uh, are suddenly competitive. Look, we should do things like, I, I'm a believer in the Keystone Pipeline. This, this seems to me the opposition to it is the worst kind of symbolism. It's going to happen anyhow. The whether you like or not, or not what the Canadians are up to, uh, it's going to happen. So the real question is where it's shipped. And to ship it, among other things, to, to China doesn't change, if you will, the, the carbon output of the, uh, uh, of the world. If anything, it probably increases it a little bit because of the, the shipping that is uh, involved. But, it, but it's, a, it's a reminder, that, as Tip O'Neill might say, that all politics is local. And 
even if there's a general sense that something may make sense, if there's powerful local forces uh, that are pushing against it, it, it it's very hard. And, you know, right now, what the decision's been postponed, what, four or five months? I think it was supposed to have been made early this year. State Department came out with a study that basically said it's a good thing. Uh, Prime Minister Harper was re recently speaking at the Council on Foreign Relations, and he made it clear that he thinks it's a, uh, a wise thing. Uh, We'll see. It won't change the fundamentals, though, of U.S. energy self-sufficiency. If fracking regulations got onerous, that could have a real impact, both on our energy situation and our, and our economic, and I'm hoping it, it won't. Uh, it turns out the, the big companies are actually quite good at it, at some of these very small ones now that can't maintain certain standards. But that, to me, ought to be, uh, ought to be worked out. But no one in my field yet has written the seminal work on what does all this mean, and I struggle with it, but it's got to have some strategic consequences. Our uh, connections to the Middle East have to somewhat change. Our vulnerability to price and supply interruptions has to become somewhat less. I, my view is it doesn't change the fundamentals of strategy, but it gives the United States a bit of a cushion a little bit of time and space that we ordinarily would not have had, say, five or ten years ago if there were certain developments in the, in the Middle East. And as a decision maker, there are a few things more welcome than time and space. My larger question is, you know, why isn't there <coughs> greater leadership? Because this is actually going to make the United States one of the low-cost manufacturing centers. We've Absolutely. been saying for the better part of two decades we've lost manufacturing. Here we have an unusually high amount of unemployment, and political leadership won't grab hold of this. But again, the, the most important law of democratic politics is not the law of numbers, it's the law of intensity. I mean, let me use another recent example, which is the gun control vote. There were all sorts of polls showing that there was a preference on the part of 90% of Americans for this legislation, which would have brought into existence various kinds of background checks. Yet it got defeated in the representative body known as the Senate. So why is it, might you ask, would a representative body turn down a piece of legislation that reflected the preferences of 90% of the American people? Answer, the 10% of the American people who came out on the other side of the issue brought to it a far greater degree of intensity. For them, it was the totality of their political behavior, whereas for the 90%, they're going to vote or give money or based upon lots of issues. But narrow, focused, intense issues have disproportionate power. Same thing then on energy issues. For those uh, who may favor a renaissance in manufacturing, that's kind of vague. But for those who are intensely committed to oppose, say, fracking because they believe that it would have all sorts of impacts on their immediate environment or drinking water or what have you, they will bring to it much greater intensity. And I think that's what we're seeing in this debate. It's also probably magnified given it's related to it, which is the, the political orientation of activists, in this case, in the Democratic Party. Well, lots of chances in the course of the evening probably to criticize activists in the Re Republican Party. But in this case, it reflects more activists in the, the Democratic Party, and it's obviously a political calculation for the White House and for certain people on the Hill whether to go against their own base. So let me switch right now, because um, this we need a very long time. I'd be sitting here a long time. You'd be sitting here a very long time. But no one else else. <laughs> um, 
You know, you make a telling point, and it's an important one, that in 2013, in our current era, the United States faces no international power that's truly a threat to our well-being, like the Soviets were during the Cold War. But my question is, aren't you fearful that our passivity today in foreign relations, in, in international relations, in dealing with smaller threats that truly aren't existential, like Syria, like Egypt, like North Korea, like what's going to happen when we basically leave Afghanistan and leave the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in place to potentially destabilize Pakistan. Like the potential destabilization of Jordan. So we have, we've exchanged on one hand the big threat for lots of important small threats, and I haven't even mentioned Iran. So how do, how do you square that with the fundamental message is mm -hmm. of putting America's house in order? Sure. Well, let's begin with where I began and you, you fairly noted, which is that there is no existential threat out there. There's nothing like either the Soviet Union for the four decades of Cold War, <clears throat> nothing like uh, Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan. So to me, that says we have, again, to use a word, a phrase I just used a minute ago, gives us a little bit of time and space. And what we want to do, I would say, is put into place the, what I call the, the restoration of our uh, economy, our human and physical capital here. So we could, by, if we start growing at a much faster rate, we could generate more defense that we do at a lower level, uh, at, you know, a percentage of GDP. And it would, I think, send a message to any would-be great power rival that this is a fool's game to play. And if anyone were nonetheless foolish enough to play it, we would, our capacity to generate the resources we would need to contend with it would be, would be manifest. So I don't see this in the larger sense as anything uh, other than preparing for the long term. And the good news is we don't have a short-term geopolitical rival. Now, as Roger correctly says, there's other things out there. So you have to ask yourself, what is it that, <coughs> that worries you? Are you worried that some of these smaller things could be uh, detrimental to American interests? And the answer is sure. And then you've got to ask yourself, uh, what, is it, uh, what is it we can usefully do? So, I mean, we may talk about Syria at some length, but you've got to ask yourself, what are our interests? And more important, Given the tools or instruments of American foreign policy, what could, we, what could we potentially bring to bear at what cost and with what effect? And I would simply say that a lot of the problems in places like the Middle East, I don't believe our interests are vital, uh, with probably with one exception or conceivably more than that. But uh, more important, the kinds of scenarios, in most cases, we're talking about Egypt, Syria, what have you. I don't believe that even if the United States were to do a lot more, it would have results that would, would reflect that, that level of activity. By contrast, in Asia, I do think the, we have our vital interests. Asia, unlike the Middle East, is where the great powers of this era <coughs> collide, China, Japan, Russia, India, the United States. 
and it happens to be a place where the instruments of US power are particularly relevant. The trade negotiations we've just begun, our diplomacy with the same weekend with China, uh, our naval and air presence. So it actually is particularly well suited. So what I'm, I'm not arguing for American withdrawal from the world. If anything, I'm arguing for greater American involvement in the part of the world where the great powers happen to be. And I actually think Asia is far more likely to be the principal area of competition of the 21st century than anywhere else. This is where history, I believe, is most likely to happen. Indeed, it's happening. Look at the tectonic plates of Asia moving. We're, we're living, if you will, in early phases of, of 21st century history here. It's reminiscent. You and I were just talking about this new book with Sleepwalkers. It's in some ways, it's eerily reminiscent of some of the maneuvering before World War I. I don't want 21st century the Asia Pacific to go the way of 20th century Europe. I want the United States, if anything, more involved. So there, I'm arguing for greater strategic involvement. But we've got we've to choose based upon an assessment of our interests and an assessment of what we could do if we were to act on their behalf. And you've always got to ask yourself the direct cost and also the indirect or opportunity cost. If you do this, what might you, know, might, what might you not be able to do? And so my, my argument is not to ignore the Middle East, but it is to scale back. And yeah, some of those things that could happen, uh, we're not going to like. They might be somewhat detrimental. In some cases, though, we're just, we're not going to have the capacity to affect them. If tomorrow you were to wake up, we were all to wake up, and there was massive instability in the House of Saud in Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia still produces about 10%, a little bit more, maybe 12% of the world's oil. If there were massive instability there, we might, our interests might be considerable, but our influence and our options might be quite quite modest, to say the, uh, the least. And I, and I, I think that for the, for, for the next year of history, it's for possibly a decade or longer, the Middle East might be a part of the world where our capacity to affect it in the ways we would want, I think, might be se severely circumscribed. And so <clears throat> you'd be, in effect, saying because we, because there aren't obviously some very simple things to do, or maybe even more complicated that you would have a high degree of confidence in, you could sort of cede Pakistan to whoever would then take it over with a hundred nukes? Well, let's, take, let's talk about Pakistan. Uh, this is a country I've struggled with for some time. You mentioned some of my career. Well, 20 odd years ago when I worked for George Bush, the father, Pakistan, South Asia was part of my portfolio at the White House. And I was heavily involved in the decision to, where we had to, under American legislation, passed by Senator Pressler, introduced by Senator Pressler and passed by the, by the full Congress. Every year we had to declare, and it gets really Orwellian here, that Pakistan did not or does not possess a nuclear device. You can work the negatives. And that's, it, we finally reached the point where we could not honestly declare or certify that Pakistan did not possess a nuclear device. We had a pretty good idea they did possess <laughs> a, uh, a uh, <clears throat> nuclear device. And what I learned with Pakistan then is that almost no policy we pursued worked. An analogy, I mean, we basically tried years of aid and support, and with various times we've tried sanction. And what I can tell, they were equally unsuccessful in influencing Pakistani behavior. Harold Brown, when he was Jimmy Carter's Secretary of Defense, once said about the Soviet Union and the arms race, when we build nuclear weapons, they build, and when we don't build nuclear weapons, they build. 
Uh, that's sort of how I feel about Pakistan. When we give them aid, they do things we don't like. And when we sanction them, they do things we don't like. And, and my first meeting with Colin Powell, when he was secretary, literally the first day he was secretary of state, we sat in his small office and we kind of went around the world. What about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? So after an hour and a half, Colin said to me, okay, so what, what worries you more than anything else? I said, oh, that's easy. He said, what's that? I said, Pakistan. Said, Pakistan? Pakistan. And I explained why. And it's, look, this is the fastest growing nuclear arsenal in the world. Fastest growing nuclear arsenal in the world. More than 100, some would say more than 150 or more nuclear weapons. The world's most powerful terrorists. This is a country that's been in existence since the late 40s. For virtually none of that time has it been a real democracy. For most of the time, it hasn't even been a faux democracy. You've got large institutions in the military and the intelligence that essentially are self-governing. You've got large swaths of territory that are out of the control of the federal government. So this is, in many ways, the scariest place. And it's already under, if you will, to some extent, hostile forces. Boy, what was worse, that the Pakistani authorities knew that Osama bin Laden was staying a mile from their West Point and didn't do anything about it? Or that they didn't know that Osama bin Laden was staying a, <laughs> choose your poison. This is a weak state. This is a, this is a decidedly weak state whose agenda, shall we say, are not always ours. This was the Walmart of nuclear weapons, AQ Khan. And all the political authorities and military authorities looked the other way. So Pakistan's not a partner. It's not an ally. It's not a friend. This is a dangerous state, but our ability to influence its behavior, much less uh, to determine its behavior, is, is decidedly finite. This is a country now, just give you some math, there's more, more than 40 million more people in Pakistan than in Russia. Russia has 143 million people. Pakistan has 185, 190 million people. Uh, so we, we, we can't control it. No, this is one of the, uh, so there, there's real problems there, but I'm not smart enough to think of what would be the foreign policies uh, that would get Pakistan to act as a responsible nation state, ready and able to meet its, its, its international obligations. So I think, sorry to go on so long, but there, there's times in life you focus on what you can accomplish. There's also times in life you focus on what it is you're trying to avoid or, the, or to avert. And you know, with Pakistan, it's a bit of both. We'd love to push them in directions where they become more capable, more responsible, and so forth. But failing that, we have to think about what are our contingency plans and what is it we try to do so Pakistan cannot have tremendously adverse consequences, not just for that part of the world, uh, but for the world as a whole. So let's, let's talk about an easier problem. Good. <clears throat> that, is, that may be the toughest. It's funny. No, we spend all of our time talking about a North Korea with a half dozen nukes, with an Iran that wants to get one. Pakistan has more than 100. This is, uh, you know, this, this is to me, at le uh, more worrisome than any of the scenarios that dominate, if you will, the day-to-day -day foreign policy debate. But in terms of Iran, surprisingly you say in this book <clears throat> that you don't think we could really allow Iran to get this nuclear weapon. There, the combination of proliferation, threats, and that military action might sadly be what we have to resort to. And so yeah. my question is, 
you've crossed that bridge right now that we can't, let's leave aside Israel, we can't live with a nuclear Iran? Why wouldn't, why doesn't it fit into your, the logic of what you just sure. said? That we, well, they got one, Pakistan's got 150. Why are we going to, why are you recommending in essence in this book that the president take military action to take out this nuclear potential? As subtle, <coughs> excuse me, as subtle as your reading is of my book, I think you didn't get that quite right. So let me say, <laughs> let me say something about it. This perfect candidate, this was to me the toughest issue for me in writing the book. I struggled with this part. It was the last part I finished. Most difficult. Because if you go to war against Iran, it will clearly, at best, delay for many years, and possibly worse, the whole strategic thrust of this book which is, in the realm of foreign policy, do less in the greater Middle East and more elsewhere. And more broadly, in the realm of national security, do less in what we traditionally call foreign policy and more in what we do domestic policy. So if we were to go to war against Iran, it's always easier to start these things than it is to dictate their trajectory. Iran would retaliate in who knows what ways. It would have what, all sorts of consequences for the international economy and so forth. Uh, so. To go down that path would, at best, uh, or at least, delay dramatically what it is I'm, I'm calling. I'm aware of that. Look, there's the two, op the, the two options. Sorry, my voice is a little bit off tonight. The two options of dealing with Iran, if current policy works, are, to me, wildly unattractive. One is the preventive military strike. And again, for all the uncertainties about what would unfold. The other is living with an Iran with nuclear weapons. Uh, I don't much like that. Uh, the Iranians are already uh, the most assertive country in many ways in the region. Think about how much more assertive they would be without nuclear weapons. Given the Sunni-Shia divide in the region, what you're seeing in Iraq, what you're seeing in, uh, in other places, Syria and so forth, does anyone seriously think that the Sunni Arabs would not want to have a nuclear weapon of their own if Shia Iran were to have nuclear weapons? Of course they would. Uh, does anyone think that the next time there was a crisis, say, between Israel and, and Hezbollah, that there wouldn't be a, then a nuclear dimension, possibly? Mobilization of weapons, again, the World War I kinds of scenarios. So it's, it's, it's terribly destabilizing. So I don't much, you know, I feel like Yogi Berra, that, that great strategist who I'm sure you have here often, you know, when you reach a fork in the road, take it. Uh, either choice of living with a nuclear Iran or, or attacking uh, one, to me, quite unattractive. I, it's why I fall back on, uh, if possible, the current policy. We just ratcheted up sanctions again this week. You put out diplomatic offers and you hope, and we'll know pretty well, I think, over the next six months, you'll have a new Iranian government soon, though the, the, the most important decision maker isn't directly affected by the elections. And we'll have a sense about whether there's an outcome that's enough for Iran and not too much for the United States and Israel. Possible. But if that doesn't happen, we, we would have to make a fateful choice. I haven't decided how I'd come out, because so much of it would depend, it's not a cop-out, so much of it would depend on the specifics of your analysis of exactly what you thought we could accomplish. If you remember about a month ago, there was a front-page story about a new generation of American bombs. These are kind of advanced bunker busters. So it's an assessment of what you could accomplish and what you think the Iranians would do. And then you're going to have to choose your, your you know, you're going to have to choose potentially between 
uh, uncertain and unattractive options. And what I try to do in the book is I lay out the questions that would have to be asked in order for me to be satisfied, and to be answered, in order for me to be satisfied that attacking Iran was the, the less bad choice. But again, if I, had, if I had my say, I would like to, I, I would hate to, if I were working for the president, I would not want to put him or her in the decision of having to choose. But sometimes you can't choose what you choose. You know, we may well reach that point. If it were to happen, it could well happen in this presidency, and that could be the most fateful decision, uh, Mr. Obama, uh, what were, were to take far more consequential, I would say, than anything uh, he might contemplate with Syria. So let's just switch to domestic economics for a minute. <clears throat> the remedy, I think, I mean, for most of our, a significant part of our short to intermediate term problems is growth. Mm -hmm. Now, we haven't had growth for five years or so, six years or so. We had a big recession. Now we've had a very, as you put it, unnecessarily slow recovery. Mm -hmm. If we had two and a half, three percent growth, we would fundamentally change at least shorter term our deficits. Balance of payments because of energy would fall into place. And we'd have more breathing room mm -hmm. to deal with long term entitlements. <clears throat> What's Absolutely. your prescription? First, why is it so slow? Second, what's your prescription to get it? Uh, I'll answer both. It is interesting, though, how little debate we've had in this country about growth. And when you think about it, we've had so many economic or other debates, very little about growth. And just to get put the facts on the table, the United States is growing now at roughly 50% to maybe 65%, somewhere between half and two-thirds the post-World War II historical average. And compounded, that's an, that, that is of enormous consequence. And as Roger correctly says, if we were to grow faster, it would, it would lubricate a lot of other things. It would, uh, it would have tr tremendous benefit. So why is it slow growth? Well, one is, you know, we obviously were in a very deep hole. And we're still dealing with a lot of bad uh, debt. That is, uh, that is one thing. Second of all, the sequester has made it worse. Uh, whatever else you think about it, the sequester has slowed things down. It seems to me the sequester is what I would call dumb public policy, not, not smart public policy, even though it has had the ironic result of taking some of the pressure off the near-term uh, deficit and debt-to-GDP ratio. We haven't, other reasons we haven't had growth, we haven't had any mo real movement in global trade. We st we've stopped, essentially, negotiating new global trade packs, and global trade used to be a great boon to uh, to uh, American and global economic growth. It was tremendous, this tremendous uh, uncertainty, and uncertainty coupled with high uh, nominal corporate tax rates. We have the highest nominal corporate taxation rate in the world, 35%. That coupled with uncertainty, it's very hard if you're the CEO to make the case you should either bring profits back home, where they'll be heavily taxed, or make long-term commitments here, because you don't know what the rules are. Very, very hard to say, what's going to be my, my return on investment? If I don't know what the rules are, if I know what the rules are, then I, gotta, I can then game it. I can figure out, I don't mean that in the bad sense, but in the good sense, I can then make some, some smart and reasonable predictions. Very hard to do that now. So I think a lot of people sat on the, uh, on, on the sidelines. So, anyhow, that, that's probably a, uh, 
So what would I do? Look, I do a lot of things in terms of uh, one, no, one or, there's one, there's a couple of upsides, by the way, the recovery of the housing market, that's beginning to happen. The energy thing we've talked about is a potential. We now have two serious trade negotiations. One is formally underway in Asia. We're about to kick one off with uh, across the, the Atlantic. Those could be uh, quite viable. I would have a corporate tax reform. I would lower, I'd work something out, whether it's a one-time holiday, or I'd rather have a permanent uh, approach that corporations then could make the, I think, smart decisions. Are we undertaxed? I don't think we're undertaxed or so much as wrongly taxed. Uh, I would say, yeah, for example, I would like to see uh, income tax levels brought down. Don't shoot me. I would actually like to see certain investment levels of taxation raised. I don't think the current level capital gains tax has to be where it is. I could bring that up. I don't think carried interest for private equity uh, should, be, you know, should be treated uh, as capital gains rather than as, as ordinary income. Uh, so I would actually like to see income taxes, uh, lower corporate taxes, uh, lower. I would like to see an infrastructure, a national infrastructure bank. Very small amounts of public money could attract all sorts of private money for all sorts of uh, projects there. I'd love to see comprehensive immigration reform. After 9-11, we halved the numbers of visas that were available for people of uh, edu extraordinary educational attainment and skills. It's just nutty. So we need to not just get those numbers up, but we need a, a, and it's not actually going to be done. It's one of the bad things about the legislation, as much as I want to see it passed this, on immigration reform. We need a strategic approach to immigration. Right now, most of the visas that are, go, are handed out go for purposes of family unification. And then you have country quotas. That's fundamentally different than those countries in the world like Canada, Australia, New Zealand that have strategic immigration systems where they decide who would be the people who would be most valuable for their economy. I would, I would introduce much more of, of that kind of So I don't think there's one thing we do, but there's lots of things, but I would basically create a, an environment where I think there'd be a, a lot more investment, uh, a, lot more, a lot more certainty. Certain things like schools are harder, obviously, to, to fix given the, uh, the forces there, but I, I, I don't think this is that tough in a funny sort of way. I really don't think. And the other thing, one other thing I would do, which is, again, would add to certainty, I'm not sure it really affects growth that much, but I do think it affects the financial health of this country, is we've got to deal with the long-term entitlement problem. We've got a train wreck out there in 10 years. Look at the numbers. And, you know, it's because of the demographics. And the good news is a lot of us are still going to be alive. Uh, the bad news is we're going to be expensive. And we don't have, the, at the moment, the, the disconnect between the obligations and the, the predictable obligations and the predictable resources is enormous. And you can't wait until the last minute to narrow that gap. I mean, it, it, then it's like Lucy in the football. You got to do it now. So 10 or 15 years later, different changes kick in so people can calculate the trajectory of their lives. How long are they going to work? What are their expectations and so forth? We've got to make these decisions now. We're not, willing to fest we're not willing to step up to that plate. So what are we going to do? But it's, like, it's, it's like turning a super tanker. You can't wait until the crisis comes and then adjust to it. You've got to head it off. But I don't see that we've got the political stomach uh, to do that. So that, again, to me, is something of an overhang. I don't think that hurts our growth, coming back to your question. But I do think one day it will. 
So as you look, as you look back <clears throat> over the last decade, what have you been, what have you learned that you thought you knew that you were just wrong about, that was consequential, that had something to do with where we are today? Couple things. It's a great question. One is I, one we already talked about. I did not see the energy transformation or revolution coming. A couple of years ago, and even when I first started writing this book, started when I started scoping it out, I had energy on the side of problems, and it was like, and then I had to sort of do a, a flip. It, it just, I just didn't see it coming. Uh, so that was one thing. Uh, I think what I had to learn, I kind of knew, but it, it brought it back with an intensity I didn't expect, was the lesson of Vietnam. For me, one of the most powerful books of Vietnam was Francis Fitzgerald's Fire in the Lake. And David Halberstam's book was really from the American side, and it was the classic about the policymakers. Frankie Fitzgerald's book was the classic book of the Vietnamese, and explained Vietnamese culture history. And in a sense, it explained why it was the Vietnamese accepted ratios of injured and dead and the rest that we thought didn't make any sense, quote unquote. And the lesson of the, the primacy of local realities over global abstractions, uh, whether it was Vietnam or Iraq or, or Afghanistan, it just, it's, I think it's one of the most important points about American foreign policy is that, uh, again, it's, almost a, it's a version of Tip O'Neill. All foreign policy is local. And when you go to war with countries, know, know the, the world you're, 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 you're entering and, uh, and have, a, real, have a, a grasp or a feel for the, the calculations of the other side because their definitions of costs and benefits and what's rational may not, may not comport with yours. But you would better have a pretty good understanding of that before you then... Uh, build assumptions. And assumptions are something else. I mean, to me, assumptions are dangerous things. Any analysis is so assumption beholden, if you will. And so the people, the, a lot of the people who persuaded George W. Bush to go into Iraq uh, piled assumption upon assumption and called it analysis about this is what was going to happen, and this was going to be the results, and this was going to be the reactions, and so forth. And it, uh, it, it just shows you how, how uh, central the strength of assumptions is to... Uh, and that's one book I went back and reread when I wrote this. was a book by two of my former colleagues, two of, I thought, the great men of American political science, uh, Dick Neustadt and Ernie May and wrote a book about the uses of history for decision makers. And it's, it's just a classic. And it just forces you to, to look at history and ask the, the right questions. And it's, uh, it's uh, worth rereading. Okay. Now it's your chance to ask some questions. If you'd go to the mic, um, I'd ask just two things. Just Tell us who you are, and no speeches. Just ask a question, because we'd like to get in as many questions as we could. So 
I don't usually start with my left, but I'm going to start with my left tonight. Please, sir. Uh, my name is William McFadden. We have uh, an unemployment rate which is historically high and underemployment rate which is even higher, approximately around 14 percent. And um, we have uh, a horrible situation nationally in reference to our roads, our bridges, our transmission system from coast to coast. Mm -hmm. And why couldn't we do something to possibly employ some of these people? Just <coughs> trying to get this thing moving, it certainly would drop the rate, uh, maybe of underemployed anyway. And everybody seems to kind of throw up their hands about it. Everybody knows it exists, but nobody seems to want to do anything about it. Uh. Look, we should, and it's the reason I like a national infrastructure bank is it doesn't require a great amount of public resources at a time. Public resources are, are in short supply. And a lot of people have said with ratios of about one to 10, <clears throat> for every dollar the government puts in, the $10 could come from the private sector, be it from this country or abroad, to finance large projects. So we've got to do it. Uh, anyone who's recently flown into any of our airports, anyone who's recently taken the train to Washington, uh, the recent bridge collapses in this country, it's, it's a scandal. I was wondering, I mean, you asked what I learned. I had no idea about the impact of infrastructure on our economic growth. You add up the amount of time we lose by sitting in traffic or slow train rides or sitting on tarmacs, it's a stunning amount of productivity. It's, this is like a, an efficiency VAT we charge to ourselves. And so we should have, I think, a major infrastructure program. It would also, by the way, make us more resilient in the face of natural disasters as well as terrorism. So there's lots of reasons to uh, do it. The employment one is not quite as robust as I would have hoped. When I looked at it, again, something I learned, uh, because of modern technology, the idea, it's not the WPA. It doesn't put millions of Americans back to work. It would put some people back to work and it would be good. But it's not a panacea for the, uh, for the problem of, of underemployed and unemployed, though it would, though it would help. No, we, we should do it. Uh, the, the unemployment issue, particularly the long-term unemployment issue, which is to me really frightening, because every day somebody is out of work, the gap between the skill set they retired with and the skill set the market is calling for is growing. So we're really going to have to revamp our training and education programs in this country to provide lifelong uh, training and education. Because even if you're not unemployed, you're, the, the skill set you may have had when you were 20 ain't going to be adequate for when you're 30, 40, or 50. So whether we have some version of the German models with community colleges and corporations doing things or whatever, we're going to have to become much more nimble in this country. But the era in which we think of education as something you front load and you finish by your 22, and then the next 50 years you live off it, no way. That can't, that, 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 that can't work. Can I take 30 seconds? I just sort of have a better answer to your question. Uh, which question? The one is what I didn't know when I wrote this, which is, um, and it comes back to your point. I grew up in this world of national security studies and kind of diplomacy. And the economic component was quite modest. You know, you know, you know, the line is universities have departments, the world doesn't. 
And we real and I had to. And for me, one of the great things of moving to New York is it got me out of Washington, which is not a bad thing in and of itself. But ten years of living here, you end up for me. Uh, I got steeped in things financial, with uh, the economists at the council, with the amount of meetings we do on it, going on a public board and some other things. It just forced me to learn about things uh, financial. And that, to me, was a tremendous, and I couldn't have written a book like this 10 years ago. Going forward, I think we're going to need people who are hybrids. Uh, one area which I'm really worried about and I'm thinking about is how do we get people who understand technology and foreign policy and public policy and international relations. By and large, you've got people who are engineers, and then you've got people who aren't. And we need people who understand both the economics and the politics and the strategic consequences of, of, of technologies. And we're going to have to figure out a way of how to educate and develop, if you will, a generation of people who are fluent in ways that cross those silos as well as the economic silos. Sorry. Yes, sir. Uh, my name is Patrick O'Connell. I'm uh, a member of the Young Friends here at the New York Historical Society, and I really enjoyed your remarks with respect to Pakistan. And could you point to Enjoy. another country that you think we as Americans are not paying enough attention to? I think uh, Japan might be a nation that we could pay closer attention to. And I was wondering, maybe is there another example like Pakistan that uh, would really jump out at us uh, if we gave it a little bit more thought? Well, first of all, it's the first time I've ever heard anyone enjoy my remarks about Pakistan. <laughs> so I'm chewing on that one. Uh, <clears throat> look, we could be Debbie Downers here and go around the world and, and come up with worst possible case scenarios uh, for lots of countries. But let me answer the question. I mean, and there, there are questions, there are obviously countries that worry. I mean, I worry about the nationalism in Asia. Uh, I worry about you know, particular countries like Nigeria or what have you. But let's talk about a positive country. I actually think the most underappreciated positive story in the world is on our border, and it's called Mexico. And we think that the, the whole, if you will, or the truth about Mexico is guns and drugs and all that. And yeah, that's part of it, and the violence. But this is an extraordinarily interesting and increasingly stable country. You've had several peaceful rotations of political power. Mexico is no longer a one-party state, like it was for, for decades. You've got a pact, it's called the, the Pacto por Mexico, amongst the three major political parties to institute nearly 100 specific reforms. You finally have talk about, uh, and I think it's going to happen, the opening up of elements of the energy sector there. You've got economic growth in Mexico now that's far higher, that's probably more than twice as high as Brazil's. People always talk about the BRICS. Mexico is now growing roughly, I haven't seen them, I think it's at least twice as fast as, as uh, Brazil. One of the reasons we don't have people coming across the border is the family size in Mexico is going way down and, that, and jobs are there because growth is there. So you know, it, this is a, an underappreciated story, but it's one of the reasons that North America is the single biggest, I think, success story in the world right now. The potential, given the energy situation, given the improvement in situation in uh, in Mexico, this is now a market of 450 million people, increasingly stable, increasingly integrated. I think if we go ahead with what I've called um, you know, as NAFTA 2.0, but the greater regionalization and integration of North America, I think it has extraordinary uh, possibilities. So there's, you know, I just point this out, there's things out there that we're not paying attention to, but they're not all bad. 
Yes, sir. My name is Jim Pasinich. I'm a docent here at the Historical Society. The, the opportunity that natural gas presents us is extraordinary, but extracting it from the land is, is a major problem. Uh, uh, what the poisons that are pushed down in the earth can, it, can it destroy an aquifer. Ohio had two minor earthquakes last year because of uh, extracting that. Are you comfortable that these larger companies that get in there can do that without destroying uh, the environment? Uh, the larger companies, yeah, I'm, worried, I'm much more worried about the smaller ones and some of the uh, things they're doing. But the larger ones, yes. But look, we've, I'm not saying it should be unregulated. I think it needs to be regulated. It needs to wash. If, if it turns out that some of our optimism is placed, we've got to slow it down or stop particular things. You've obviously got to look at the geology of certain areas. Uh, and like, like, like all public policy undertakings, there's risk, there's cost, as well as, I mean, you, you've got to you've got to calculate them. So I'm, I'm not going to sit up here and blithely say there's no concerns and all that. Uh, and that's why I think there is a case for regulation. I, I, I did favor initially federal regulation. And then a lot of people talked me out of it because they said the local conditions, geologic and otherwise, argue against one-size-fits-all regulation. They said it's done better at the state level. And there I'd say, so long as you've got the machinery, uh, yeah, but I, you know, it's obviously a space we've got to we've we've got to watch. But I, what I want to avoid, though, is is sort of going to the other side, which is sort of the assumption that this is this is bad and and and, and dangerous. And I think there's a little bit of that going on as well. But I, I'm hoping we you know, we can come up with a uh, a compromise that'll that'll let us uh, proceed. But if it turns out I'm wrong, then we're going to have to adjust the way we go about it. Yes, sir. <clears throat> Hello, uh, Rich McNeil. Uh, for foreign policy, what would it take to get America involved in Syria, whether it be boots on the ground or whether it just be, you know, shooting planes down? And then on the domestic side, did, was there is there ever any talk about mandatory public service, whether it could be joining the military or working for some government agency for a mandatory two to three years? Well, it's like the. Take them both. Take the second one first. I, I'm actually attracted to the idea of some sort of mandatory public service. The military doesn't want to draft. Uh, the military leadership doesn't want to have to contend with uh, everything from the politics to other things. It doesn't have those kind of manpower needs. But the idea of some sort of public service, or if not mandatory, incentivized public service, loan forgiveness. I mean, I think there's things we ought to do. Uh, I like the idea and as a society. And... When I look at societies where public service is fairly broad, broadly distributed, I think it's a healthy, a healthy thing. So I would like to you know, come up, but it, it, there's obviously political obstacles and in an age of high unemployment and the rest, you're gonna have pushback. It's also one of those areas where right, people across the political spectrum for different reasons push back against it. Certain people on the, on the right often are against it because it's seen as too large a role for the state not enough individual choice and so forth. So anyhow, it's a complicated political thing, but I don't think it's a bad idea. On Syria, uh, what can we say? The, look, it's, you've probably had 80,000 people lose their lives already, maybe more. You've got well, well above now a million refugees, possibly several million internally displaced. Internally displaced are people who are forced out of their homes who don't cross borders. You probably have several million now of those in, in, in Syria. 
Uh, there's also strategic interest. It's become something of a proxy battleground. It also has the potential to, to spread. And the, the question is what to uh, do about it. Uh, I actually am pretty supportive of the administration here. It's been quite disciplined in not jumping in. And I think the reason is there's a lot of wariness about what it would entail, first of all, to get rid of the regime, but second of all, then what? And what we've learned in some of these things like <clears throat> Afghanistan and Iraq is, is the, the quote-unquote aftermath is often more difficult than, than ousting a, uh, a regime. And it would, you know, to take ownership or a large role in Syria would be, I think, uh, is, is, it's a big, 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 big undertaking. So I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of unease with that. And most of the arguments I've seen for direct military intervention, again, assume away a lot of things with this. So I, I'm not wildly impressed by most of the arguments. What I, I would do is everything we could to stabilize the neighbors, particularly Jordan uh, and Turkey, uh, help the refugees. I, w I also feel if we're not going to get involved directly militarily, then we should do more indirectly. And I would be willing to go one step that the, the president does not, which is provide lethal military help to selected oppositionists. Now, not to all. So there's some really bad guys there. And one of, the, one of the two rules in the Middle East I recommend people take to heart is that the enemy of your enemy can still be your enemy. Uh, <laughs> in Syria, you got some people fighting the Assad regime who could still be your enemy. But not everybody should be tarred with that brush. There are some people. Uh, is there risk in doing that? Sure. Some of those weapons will get into bad hands. Okay. There's, you got to make decisions. You got to make choices not to choose, not to act. This is as much a decision as acting. So I would, I would do that one thing. So I would basically be more generous with indirect help. I would do everything possible to deal with the, the spreading and the humanitarian issue. I would not get involved, though, um, directly for all the reasons, if you will, that are either explicit or implicit uh, in, in my book. Well, look, it is 7.30, and Dale Gregory will come up here with a baseball bat to, to make sure we end this, um, this conversation. But I think you can see why um, this is really an interesting book. You may not agree with everything in it, but that's actually the reason why Dr. Haas wrote it. It's to really make us all think about big questions, about how we should think about as a as a sovereign nation, what we have to do in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And it is very different than what we've done in the last 5, 10, 15, or 20 years. And it's beautifully written. And I think you will enjoy it. And you can buy it in our bookstore. And if you do, I think Dr. Haas will sign it for you. So with that, let me, before Dale, before Dale gives the final benediction here, um, <clears throat> let me just um, thank Richard for a wonderful evening. Thank you. So, Roger Hertog, we thank you too. Let's give Roger Hertog and Richard Haas a hand. <laughs>